Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. You guys should clap louder than that. Those are hard names. <laughs> uh, it's torture sometimes what I do to you guys. Hey, Happy New Year. Uh, good, to, good to see you guys. Good to be seen. Last year, or last year, yeah, last week, almost last year, uh, you know, we didn't get to meet because of the weather, so super glad you guys are here. How many of you ha- have already broken your New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Okay, good. I think it's probably because you guys didn't make any. That's, <laughs> you can't fail if you don't try. Uh, last year, I had a goal of losing 15 pounds, and now uh, here in 2022, I'm pleased to announce to you that I have 25 pounds to go. Uh, <laughs> went the wrong direction on that deal. So, uh, What I am excited about, though, uh, is what gives us the power to change, and that is the Holy Spirit. That's God. And as we start this new year, we're starting a new series uh, in a book of the Bible called Ezra. And really, we're going to be looking at Ezra and Nehemiah for a while, because in our Bibles, they're two separate books, but in the Hebrew Bible, they were one book, and they tell one story. And uh, it's probably not a book of the Bible that you've studied very much. Uh, And that's because it's a very ordinary book. By that, I mean God doesn't do anything like outrageous. There's no crazy miracles. There's not really that many life verses in it. Uh, It's just a really ordinary book of God doing extraordinary things through his people. God's perfect plan through his imperfect people. And the reason I love this book is because that's us. You know, God doesn't ordinarily show up in miraculous ways. He shows up through his faithful people and through the kind of subtle working of his spirit behind the scenes. And as we jump into this book, we're we're jumping into a time period in biblical history uh, that is called the post-exile time. So God's people uh, are a lot like God's people today. They're very rebellious. Uh, Blake being one of those people. God creates a plan and Blake doesn't like that plan. So I rebel. And uh, the same was true for the Israelites, God's chosen people. And after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of rebellion against God, after bad leader, after bad leader, after bad leader, God's mercy finally ran out. In fact, Ezra 1 through 3, the first three verses are actually a repeat, uh, a direct quote, turn back a page, from 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And in 2 Chronicles, uh, at the end there, we see that God's uh, mercy had run out to the point to where there was no remedy. That's what the Bible says. It's a very frightening verse to hear. Uh, And God, in his kind, loving uh, way, allowed his people to be disciplined. And so God raised up the king of Babylon. Babylon comes in and destroys Israel. So it's a really uh, dark part of God's people's history. Uh, Babylon comes in and they kill the children. They kill the elderly. They come in and they take down the walls. They destroy the temple where God's people meet. And they take God's people into captivity. And the people of God remain there for 70 years. At least that's what Jeremiah prophesied would happen. He said, you guys will be there for 70 years. But God in his mercy and his kindness actually didn't even make the people of God wait 70 years. Because 50 years after the captivity began, God raised up another king. He raised up the king of Babylon. Then he raised up King Cyrus, the king of the Persians. And uh, the king uh, of Persia thought he was kind of big and bad. He didn't realize that it was God working through and in him, paving the way for his success. But as the king of Persia comes onto the scene, he comes and he destroys the Babylonians. And kind of as a, as a piece of you know, taking over the Babylonian empire, he gets these Jewish people. And uh, the king, uh, King Cyrus is his name, uh, he ruled from about 589 B.C. to 580 B.C. He had a different philosophy on religions. He was a, he was a pluralist. 
meaning he didn't think that you had to bow down to him. He didn't care what God you worshipped as long as you also were a good citizen. And uh, his, his kind of philosophy was if the people are happy, they'll be better citizens, which uh, a lot of our modern governments have stolen from him. You know, we don't really care if you believe in God as long as that doesn't kind of infringe on what the empire is trying to do. And that's exactly what was happening here. God raises and rouses his spirit. He sends the people back. And what the people do is they are rebuilding. They're supposed to rebuild what God has called them to do. And I love this because it's actually a shadow and it's a picture of what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to do. We're to be builders. We're to be restorers. So if you ask me what our, our vision is for this year, uh, our vision is going to be the same that Ezra and Nehemiah have. We're going we're gonna to rebuild the temple. It's going to be beautiful and huge. Uh, we're, we're, gonna, we're going to restore right worship and we're going to build a wall. Uh, that's exactly what happens in this. Now, the temple obviously is different for those of us who are Christians. The temple is the church, the people of God. That's where we gather. We're going to restore right worship and we're going to build a wall. Uh, long before the 2016 presidential election, there was a, a leader <laughs> who wanted to build a wall. And uh, his name is Nehemiah. And we're going to learn more about that as we go on throughout the text. So that's your introduction class. Now I'm going to pray and we'll get into today's sermon. And we're going to look at how God works in mysterious ways. He works behind the scenes through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Father God, we thank you for this book of the Bible. Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Lord, that we don't have to be stuck in mystery, stuck in blindness, not knowing who you are or what you've done. But Lord, you've revealed to us many great things about your will for our lives and your will for this church. Lord, we pray that as we read this text, we would, we would focus on you. We would focus on your power. God, that we would be people who are dependent upon you. Because God, with you, anything is possible. And without you, Lord, we have nothing. And God, with you, I can preach this message with truth, but without you, I, I cannot preach this word. So I ask that you help me. I ask that you help my listeners. God, it's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Now for you kiddos in here, Ezra has a really fun verse. Ezra uh, chapter 7 verse 21 has every letter of the alphabet except for one. So I'm going to give you guys a task. In the next 30, realistically 40 minutes, um, you guys find that one letter that's not mentioned in Ezra chapter 7, verse 21. Now, I know some of the adults are like, I kind of want to do that. You've got to focus on me because what we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do something different. Uh, we, we're going to look at the four questions that we always ask when we're reading a text. And this is especially true in the Old Testament because the Old Testament can really become a lot about moralism and we miss out on the big meta narrative of Jesus saving his people. Uh, so the four questions we always ask when we come to a text is, what does this text say about God? What does it say about who he is? And the next question we ask is, where is Jesus in this text? He's on every page of this book. Every single one. If you can't find him, it's because you're not looking hard enough. He's always there. So what does this text say about Jesus and what he is doing? And then the third question is, what does it say about us, our identity? Who are we in this story? Plot twist, we're usually not the hero. <laughs> we're usually the weak guys over in the corner. And then finally, how do we live in light of all of that? And th this text lays it out perfectly, uh, actually in order, which I love when the text does that. So we're going to answer, who is God? Where is Jesus in this? Who are we to be? And then how do we live? All right, so who is God? The answer to that question is found in verses uh, 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it in writing. Now, if you're on the outside and you don't have the Bible, who does it look like is doing all the work here? Who does it look like is freeing the Jews? King Cyrus. 
But we know, because of God's revealed word, what's actually going on behind the scenes. It's not King Cyrus at all. It's the Lord. The Lord who is rousing the spirits of his people. The Lord who is rousing the spirits of Cyrus. The Lord who is making the way for all of this to happen. And here we get a great lesson on God's sovereignty. The answer to question one is, who is God? He's sovereign. And I used to think of sovereignty as like God is a puppet master. You know, like he's like moving everything around in a, in a really kind of rigid type of way. But really, the sovereignty of God is, is more uh, like uh, an official at a football game. So how many know an official at a football game can really destroy the game for your team? Right. They have a lot of sovereignty. You can play the game, but he's got the whistle. He's got the ultimate authority. This is how God works in human history. See, we, we have free will. We have responsibility that we take. But ultimately, it's God who, who, who will make sure that his plan comes to fruition. It is ultimately God who is sovereign over everything. He's the one who can rouse hearts. He's the one who can change things. Uh, there, there's just too much in this world for it to be coincidence. I was reading this last week about World War I, and I was just reminded of how crazy it was that it even started in the first place. Uh, the guy who assassinated uh, the Duke that kind of set everything off had planned to assassinate him, and he actually missed and uh, the Duke was going to the hospital to visit other people who actually got shot. And the guy who ended up killing him was at a bar eating a burger and uh, drinking a beer kind of you know, in his sorrows. And he just happened to see the Duke right there. And he was able to assassinate him and World War I started. <laughs> now, on one hand, I can say, well, what a weird coincidence. On another hand, I can say, there's something bigger going on here. <laughs> like out of all the roads, out of all the streets that that would happen. If you've been a follower of Jesus for very long, you'll begin to notice these things. You know, in, in the time that it's happening, you don't understand why it's happening or what's going on, but you can look backwards at the story and go, that's why that happened when that happened. That there's a God who's sovereignly moving things in a way in which we do not fully understand. See, King Cyrus thinks he's a big hotshot, but in reality, what is he doing? He's just fulfilling the word of God. He's fulfilling this word specifically, Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 uh, through 14. This is during the exile, Jeremiah says, For this is what the Lord says, When seventy years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Because that's ultimately what God wanted and that's what he wants for us. He wants relationship. He's not worried about you doing all the right things and making a big impact in the world the way you see it. No, he, he wants his people to work and to reign and to rule with him as a family. Uh, verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. And uh, this is really good news for us when we think about God's word, because it cannot be broken. And when you look at a world that is often falling apart in many different ways and areas, and our world is not as bad as the world has been, but certainly we, every generation has their own struggles and we have ours. And yet we can look at the word of God and know that that is as sure as anything else. That when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that's a word that will come to fruition. When Jesus says he will put every enemy under his foot, under his feet until the last one, which is death, we as Christians can take that and confidently say yes. 
When Jesus says, when Paul actually, through the Spirit of God, says that God will work out to perfection all the things He's working in us, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it feels like life is going the way we wouldn't want it to go, we can believe wholeheartedly that God is sovereign, that God is doing what He is supposed to do. So for those of us who are Christians, we ought to rely on God and not man. And yet so many of us look for King Cyrus's, don't we? You know, the next president, he's going to fix things. Or, you know, my, my boss... I gotta stay with this boss, even though you know it's leading me down paths I shouldn't be with. But but he's the King Cyrus who's gonna help me. We look for human help, and yet human help will let us down every single time. I found it really interesting uh, that seven of the eight Ivy League schools, you know, like the big schools—Harvard, Yale—seven of the eight were founded by Christians for Christian purposes. Uh, Harvard actually was founded, and it was named after a pastor named John Harvard, who gave his entire library away to the university so that they could start the school. And yet what happens to all of us is as we get more wise, as God blesses things, we begin to get arrogant and prideful. And then we think we don't need God anymore. Uh, it's, it's really kind of frightening. Uh, Parker doesn't like it either. <laughs> and I agree with her completely. Uh, Harvard's mission in uh, 1642 was this. Yes, everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's the statement of Harvard. One of the most liberal institutions we have now. Their chief end. And then they said John 17, 3 was their verse, their, their, um, their kind of motto verse. It says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. The one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Well, I was reading it in August. Harvard, now many years later, has named their new chaplain, the guy who's over religious studies at Harvard. His name is Greg Epstein, and he's an atheist. <laughs> How do you be a chaplain as an atheist? And uh, Epstein's quote uh, says this. We go from everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life to what the new chaplain says. He says, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. That's not going to end well for them. And yet I'm not here to bash on Harvard because the same could be true of me, the same could be true of you. When you get sick, do you pray or do you run to the medicine cabinet? And when you're out of money, uh, is your first instinct to pray or is it to frantically try to find more? We often, in our own strength, try to do things when in reality, it is the sovereignty of God that we must rely on. And that's why every uh, January, we take 21 days of prayer and fasting. Every January, and it starts tomorrow, we're doing it again. We take 21 days to meet together and pray for an hour, and we fast. Fasting is, is giving up something that you rely on. Uh, fasting originally, and I think in its most true form, is about food. You're supposed to give up food. You're supposed to feel hunger. Because we as Americans don't feel hunger very much. And you know what's great about feeling hunger? You're reminded of your mortality. You're reminded on who you must rely on. I am not God. If I go a few days without eating, I get weak at the knees. I cannot do this on myself. And every time I feel a hunger pain, I, I'm to cry out to God. That God, I cannot live on bread alone, but by your words. This is what fasting is all about. And I'd encourage you guys to join me. Um, give it some time to, to think about it today. I was hoping we could meet last week so you could have a whole week to think about it, but we're going quick here. Uh, for me personally, this season, I'm going to do what I always do as far as giving up Diet Coke because 
Diet Coke and, and God are, are real close to my, my mind. I, mean, I, I rely on Diet Coke a lot. So I always give up Diet Coke for 21 days, and I'm miserable to be around, and so I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and I'm going to give up food on certain days of the week. So there's certain days of the week that I'm going to go the whole day without eating any food, just drinking water. And the goal of that is that I would have time to rely upon God. Now, I don't know what yours is. You don't necessarily have to give up food. I know some of you have health reasons for why you can't do that. Um, I think for a lot of us, it'd probably be a really good idea to give up social media. And every time you feel the Facebook God calling your name, you can pray to the real God. You might like it a lot if you go 21 days without social media. I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, I promise you'll find out. You know, I got my wife. She, every time I miss something on social media, Taylor comes and tells me. And, and so I, I have a way of finding out uh, of what's going on. And I think you will, too. So maybe you could give that up. Uh, that's my pitch for giving up social media. But whatever it is, we, we as a church, we take 21 days to cry out to God, to give up something we depend on so that we fall to our knees and we pray to him. Now, this year, uh, last year, we met at six in the morning. And uh, I was told by several people that that was too early. Uh, so I'm trying to help you guys out a little bit this year. Uh, we're going to be meeting at the lunch hour this year. So we'll, we'll meet to pray together from uh, 12 to 1 o'clock. Now, if you're like, Blake, I can't do that because of my job, I'll meet with you at a separate time. Uh, we can meet in the morning and pray. The, the point is I'm trying to get as many of you as possible to come and pray uh, because I, I think it's really, really important. And we don't rely on me. We don't rely on the world's methods of growing the church. We rely on God's methods of building the church. It's very simple. It's the word and it's prayer. And uh, we want to people, be people who not just say that or think that, but people who do that. So I'd encourage you to join me at that. The address is 2803 Maple Street. It's the office for the Northwest Baptist Association. It's in the parking lot of Crown Heights Baptist Church. I'd love to see you there. If you need any more information on that, I will get it to you. So that's question number one, who is God? Question number two is, who is Jesus? And it's really interesting. Uh, in verses two through four, we see King Cyrus and it's almost impossible as a New Testament Christian to not see how Jesus is the better King Cyrus. How King Cyrus fails at every point that Jesus actually succeeds at. So let's look at it together. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, it sounds like he's become a Christian, doesn't it? The, the God of the heavens has given me all authority and power. Well, what Cyrus is actually doing here is a really great political move. Uh, somebody has shown him Jeremiah chapter 51. And in Jeremiah chapter 51, it says, I will raise up somebody who will destroy the, the, the Babylonian empire. And then he kind of read in Jeremiah 29 where it says, and there will be somebody who will build the house. And he says, huh, I could be that guy. I destroyed the, the, uh, you know, the Babylonians. And so he comes in and, and he takes this. And we have leaders who do this today. It's actually one of the most frustrating things to me as a Christian watching this thing happen is you see people who know the right things to say to Christians so that they can manipulate them to get them to do what they want them to do. People who care nothing about the Christian faith will use the Christian faith to get what they want accomplished. And that's exactly what we see here with Cyrus. That's all he's doing. In fact, uh, he says uh, there's a thing called the Cyrus Cylinder, which has his quotes on it that we found. Uh, it's in a museum somewhere. And on it, he says he builds all these temples for these people so that their gods might pray to the real gods. He's hoping that Yahweh would pray to the gods that he believes in, which there's a, a little play on that in a little bit. That's really beautiful. Uh, but as we continue on, verse 3, it says, Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house or the temple of the Lord. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. 
Notice that? The God who is in Jerusalem. He wants to compartmentalize God. That God is the one that's in Jerusalem. It's not the God of the world. It's the God that's in Jerusalem. And then verse 4, it says, Let every survivor or every exile, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of the God in Jerusalem. I found um, four ways that Jesus is better than Cyrus in this. Uh, Jesus has better authority. Uh, than Cyrus does. So Cyrus rightly says, my authority comes from the Lord. He gets it wrong. He doesn't actually believe it, but he's right when he says that. And we see in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus has authority also. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ is on a throne right now. That's what we believe as Christians. And as Christians, we've got to wrap our mind around this. If I ask you, who is the king of America? It's Jesus. Who is the king of Mexico? It's Jesus. Who's the king of Russia? It's Jesus. Now, the political powers and the pawns that are within these countries think they're in charge, but it's ultimately King Jesus who is on his throne. You know, every election cycle, people say, this is God's chosen man that we have to vote for, chosen woman we have to vote for. And and I want to say that's absolutely ridiculous because God already has his chosen man and his name is Jesus. And he's not willing to share the throne with anybody else. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics. You, as, a, as Americans in a democracy, you should exercise your vote to, write, to vote if that's what you want to do. But what I am saying is you do, should not rely on those leaders as if they are God, as if we need them. Now, we already have the one with all the authority on heaven and earth, and he's on his throne. The second way that we see uh, Jesus is better is Jesus is, is building a better temple. I mentioned this earlier, but in the New Testament... Uh, the temple is not referred to as a place where the people come and meet with God like this. This is not a temple. The temple is us. It's the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter says we're all like stones. We're all living stones in which we're built together. And as we come together, God's church grows. It's this massive, beautiful, unique temple all across the world. It's God's people. And if man wants to meet with God, they want to come to a place where God is, then they ought to come into the church, not the church building, but into the church, the people of God gathered. That's why I fear as we get a building that one day we'll forget this. And I will continually remind us that we are not a church building. We are a church family. And when we leave this place, we're no less the church than we were when we came into this place. Jesus is building a better temple. And then number three is Jesus goes with us. So I think it's interesting that Cyrus sends people. He says, let every survivor wherever he resides be assisted by the men of the region. He, he's, he's given away other people's money and he's sending other people. Uh, and this is what the kings of this world do. They'll start a war, but they're not fighting it. <laughs> you know, they'll tax you, but they're not paying them. And then what do we have with Jesus? Well, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go, and then at the end of it, he says, and I will go with you. As Christians, we have the best king. Our King Jesus is with us in every battle. Our King Jesus is with us in every trial. Our King Jesus is with us in every temptation if we will only look for him. And then the last one is this, is that Jesus gives everything he has. King Cyrus is unwilling to give anything. King Jesus gives everything. King Jesus came off his throne in heaven and he could have ruled and reigned. Nobody would have blamed him for that. That's probably how I would have showed up. I would have showed up in a Bentley or something like, hey, I'm the God of the universe. What's up? Not Jesus, he's born in a manger. He comes and he lives the life I should have lived, and then he dies the death I was supposed to die. 
giving his entire life. The God of this universe dies humiliated, naked and poor on a cross for me and for my sake. Jesus is a way better king than King Cyrus. See, that's what we see in this text. So where is Jesus? Well, he's, he's the better King Cyrus. So who are we? Well, we find ourselves uh, in verse 5. It says, So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had roused. Again, we see God moving. God's doing this. Same is true for you. Same is true for ascent. I would not be here if God had not roused my spirit to do this. You would not be a part of this if God had not roused your spirit to do it. We are dependent upon the spirit of God for all things. Prepare to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a free will offering. We see the people of God, what we are to do is we're to be responders. We respond to what God is already doing. Uh, this time of year, you hear a lot about people like asking, what's their purpose in life? You know, I'm just trying to discover what my purpose is in life. You don't find purpose, you do purpose. God has already given us our purpose. So we find where he is working and we plug into that. That's how this thing works. In front of us, we only have three purposes, really. That's to love Jesus, love like Jesus. And if we do those two things, the third one will fall into place, which is to inspire the world. Like, this is what we do. So wherever I am today, my goal tomorrow is to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. That's my purpose. But see, a lot of us, we don't actually want purpose. We want God to fulfill our plan. Plan and purpose go together. You don't have a purpose if there's not a plan. Purpose is to fulfill something. So, for instance, um, you know, I have an Apple phone. And Apple, every three years to take more of your money, changes the, the headphone jack for your phone. And, you know, I, like, I love listening to music. And before they changed it, I had a headphone deal with the skinny little plug-in thing. And, you know, I use those things all the time. They had a great purpose. Well, when Apple changes it, guess what? Those headphones, I don't even know where those old ones are. They're in the trash can somewhere probably because my wife throws everything away and I'm a hoarder. <laughs> they lost their purpose because they didn't have anything to plug into. And a lot of us, we, we want to be the end result. When in reality, God is calling us to plug in, to have a purpose in His plan. And, and churches are filled with two types of people. There's more than this, but there's at least these two types of people. There are those who come here and are a part of this because you want God to fulfill your plan and you think you can manipulate God into making His purpose your plan. You know, if I give money, maybe God will bless my money. If I come to church for you know, so many weeks in a row, then maybe God will bless my family. And it's all about you and what you want to accomplish. And this is why when something bad happens in your life, you say things like, why would God allow this to happen? That's a fair question. But I just want you to know when you're asking that question, you're putting yourself in the position of the plan. God, I had a plan and you messed it up. And in reality, God calls us to the other type of people. The people who say, God, it's your plan, and I lay my plan down at the altar. My purpose is to fulfill your plan. My money is to fulfill your plan. My life is to fulfill your plan. My work is to fulfill your plan. Where you say go, I go. What you say do, I should do, I will do. And when life falls apart and I don't understand it, I will trust you all the more. Because it's not my plan, it's your plan. This is a vast difference between the two. And I'm concerned because... In our church, not this church, but in the American church as a whole, we're so comfortable. And there's so many people who think that because they come to church or they give money or they do something, they deserve something from God. 
And then when life falls apart, they lose their faith in God. And I just want to say, you never had your faith in God to begin with. Because faith in God is to have faith in His plan and to make your life purpose fulfilling that plan. Last question is, how do we live? Verse 7, it says this, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of his gods. So when Nebuchadnezzar came, he took all of the, the things that they liked out of the temple and he took it for his own treasury. And now King Cyrus is saying, here, you can have this back. Oh, what an act of generosity. He's giving back what wasn't his anyways. <laughs> it's like if you showed up to my house and, and you know, I said, yeah, you can stay the night. And you were in the guest room. And then uh, you, know, you came in my room and you said, hey, Blake, I've been praying about it. And I decided you can stay another week. I'd say, what? No, you're the one who gets to stay another week. This is my house. And well, this is exactly what's happening here. It's God's house. And Cyrus is like, here, look at me. I'm so generous giving back to what God, what already belonged to him. Uh, and this is exactly what we are to do. It's the answer to the question of how do we live? We take back what belongs to God. The Lord owns the earth. Everything is his. This is why in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says what? He says, go and make disciples in the nations. The nations are ours. They're God's. They're Jesus's. And so our whole life is taking back what Jesus rightfully owns through the gospel message of Jesus. Jesus compares the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It starts really small, one of the smallest seeds there is, and it grows into this massive tree. And this massive tree is to provide shade for people. So wherever we are, wherever the church is, it should be growing and expanding. And that means that more people should be coming to know God, and it also means that the poor should be blessed. It means that the thirsty should find a place where they can get a drink of water. It it means that our community should be better off because we are here. As we regain the ground. This is why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Your will on earth as it is in heaven. Our goal in Northwest Oklahoma, I can't change the world, but what we can do is we can change Northwest Oklahoma, and our goal is to see this place look as close to heaven on earth as possible. Will we get there until Jesus comes back? Absolutely not. But we're to be like a mustard seed that is growing, a light that is growing brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And that people would look at us and say, I don't believe what they believe. I think they're kind of crazy, but I'm sure glad they're here. You know, and I just want to congratulate you guys and thank you guys because as a church, I don't say this enough, but we do so much. I was looking back uh, last year, 2021, we gave away in food and in benevolence to some of you and to some people outside the church, we gave away $70,000 worth of stuff. That's crazy. That's like $1,000 per person in this room. That's just what we gave away. That didn't even include the ministry that we did at Ascent that is so important. And what I want to see is I want to see that grow. I want to see us take more of this back. King Jesus rules this place. And I want to see his rule and his reign come to bear on this earth. Now, as we uh, close it out, we go to verses 9 through 11. Uh, verse 8 through 11, rather. It says, King Cyrus of Persia had them brought out under the supervision of Meredith, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshabar, the prince of Judah. Now, the reason why these names are so hard is they're actually... they're telling us more about God's subtlety in all of this. Uh, Both of these names are named after the the Persian gods of the sun. One means worshiper of the sun, the other means protector of the sun. Uh, Which is really interesting because in Jeremiah, uh, right after the prophecy, if if, uh, Cyrus would have kept reading, what he would have seen is that the one who does this is the Lord, the maker of the sun, the maker of the heavens and the earth. In other words, it's this kind of subtlety of you thought this was yours, but the one who who made what you worship is the one who's actually controlling these things. I love the irony of this. This is why the Bible should not be boring to you. 
If it's boring, it's because you're not looking at it deep enough. There's all sorts of things like this throughout it. And then uh, verses 9 through 11, this is really interesting. It says, this was the inventory. It says 30 gold basins, 1,000 silver basins, 29 silver knives, 30 gold bowls, 410 various silver bowls, and 1,000 other articles. Now, that sounds really boring unless you are an observant reader. Because then you might notice that if you add those things up, it does not equal what verse 11 says. The gold articles and silver articles totaled to 5,400. Now, I'm not going to lie to you guys. Seventh grade math was the worst three years of my life. (laughs) I'm not good at math. Uh, I was at a pastor's meeting one time, and I made a fool of myself. They were talking about some politician who spent $300 million on advertising. And I thought, man, how outrageous. And I stood up and I said, you know, that guy could have gave a million dollars to every American. And they said, Blake, $300 million, that would be $1 to every American. Yeah, okay. And some of you are like, I don't get it. You're with me on the math train. Yeah, Not good at mathematics. But this certainly does not add up. And I've consulted the commentaries multiple times. And there's a lot of different reasons for why this might be. Uh, number one, they didn't have Google Docs, you know, so they couldn't like just pass this on. What they had to do was actually write all this by hand. And so this is a 2,500-year-old document. Somewhere along the way, some guy like Blake added this stuff up and put it down wrong. That's a possibility, you know? Um, It wasn't his gifting, and he was trying to do it anyways. Uh, But what I think it points to, and I could be wrong, you can disagree with me on this part, uh, is I think it points to the fact of this idea that Jesus has, which is the already but not yet. That Jesus is the king, and he's ruling and he's reigning, and we're taking back what is rightfully his. But we're not all the way there, are we? We have the promise. We have the sovereign word of God saying these things will come to fruition, and yet we're not quite there yet. People still die. People we love still get sick. We still lose our job. We still can't defeat the sin battle that we've been struggling with for years, and we begin to wonder if we're ever going to defeat it. And yet we have the promise that this all will be fulfilled. And if you add it all up right now in your life, you're like, I'm not even halfway. If we add it up in the world, we say, man, we're not even halfway. And yet we have the promise that it's already there even though it's not yet there. Throughout this book, we're going to see things like this as we study Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm really excited because in it, we do get to see how God works through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. And Molly, if you want to go ahead and come back up as we close. As we start this new year, I really want to center our attentions on God. And that same verse where he talks about uh, being the maker of the sun He also talks about how we are to stand before him in silence. And I think for a lot of us, we spend our time focusing so much on ourselves that we never realize how big and great God is. And so what I want to do maybe is a little uncomfortable for everybody, but if you would bow your heads and close your eyes, I want you to focus your attention on God. Focus your attention on his greatness, his power and his glory. We spend all of our time all of our thoughts on other people and on other things. Let's just take 60 seconds to focus all of our thoughts and all of our attentions on God.
Father, it took me not even 10 seconds for my mind to begin to wander on what I have to do today and what, what's next for me and what I need to accomplish. My thoughts just so easily go back to me, my problems and my strength. And yet, God, it is only through you that anything happens. God, with you, anything is possible. Without you, nothing is possible. Lord, as we come into this book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we study you and we study the way that you work in your church, the way that you build your church. Lord, I pray that our attention would be directed off of ourselves and onto you. Jesus, that as we see you as the better king, we would not look for Cyrus's to lead us, but we would trust wholly and totally in King Jesus. Trusting that even when life falls apart around us, you have a plan. Trusting that even when we are riddled with anxiety and worry, you're not worried and you're not anxious. Trusting God that you are with us. You're not like the kings of this world. You don't send us on the front lines without your help. No, you give everything and you're right there with us in it. Jesus, this year is going to hold many things for us. There's going to be tragedies. We're going to be at funerals we didn't want to attend. There's going to be scary things that happen in our nation that we don't yet know of. So we look forward. We look forward with hope, but we also know realistically that there will be struggles ahead. And yet, Jesus, may we right now determine in our hearts and determine in our minds that throughout all of those struggles, we will not focus on the circumstances, but we will focus on the Savior who is with us in the circumstances. Jesus, we love you. We pray that you would rouse our spirits to what you want us to do. God, it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand and worship this King. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.